The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. This is kind of like a summary of some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, You'll see here from our perspective, and that perspective is Baptist Children's Homes. Uh, Like Regina said, I'm the trainer, state trainer, uh, director of family intervention and training. And I travel the state to all of the different group homes across the state. And we look at the children in care. Uh, We kind of look at what's going on with each case so that we can have an idea of what direction to take when we come across these families. So this summary is the complexities of a family in crisis sets the stage for some type of abuse, be it verbal, physical, domestic, mental, or sexual. There is no specific formula that we can compute for a certain outcome, but we can certainly attest to the equation that family crisis plus traumatic response equals abuse of some type. And so that's what we want to talk about today. What are some of the family crises that we see children experience here in the United States? All right. Isolation, incest, suicide. Has anyone have ever seen an example, even in your church, of any of these three? So you've seen, did you know what to do about it when you've seen this evidence? Um, by the time we were made aware of it, the state was already involved. Okay, okay. So we mostly did, um, like, counseling with the kids, either one-on-one or sometimes in a group, like, in a girl youth setting. Okay, great. So so almost like a, um, you're in a community of like-minded and like experiences where the child won't feel isolated or, or, or just kind of a cast out. So we also have sexual abuse, bullying, and child neglect. Has anyone seen these types of, of family? Th- these are family crises. This is things that happen in a family that actually puts the word crisis on top of a family. And the one thing about it, as we're going through this list, families don't recognize and realize that they are always in crisis. They really don't know. They're not certain that what's happening. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see behavior that kids exhibit that parents don't know what to do about it. Children don't know what to do about it. All they know is they're hurting in some kind of way. They don't feel that they can solve their problems. And so they're going to give behavior that's hoping that somebody can respond and someone can interact in some way. Now, I want to give you a little little hint here. None of these crises that are, that are here have to do with each other. Any of these words can be interchanged at any point during a child's life. It could be a, a, a death in a family or it could be substance abuse. Here we have latchkey children. Does anybody remember that term? This is an old term. But that means children whose parents are out working. Nobody's home when they get home, so they have to have a key to get in. Can you imagine the lack of safety when the kid has the key and you're going home and you don't know who's looking? Who could crash in on that child just as they're fumbling around with that key? You know, so this is really a very important thing to look at because there's not a particular crisis there, but there is a thwart possible that child's uh, safety could be threatened. So also homicide, accidents, a child going home could come across a homicide. We, we never know what happens when we're out in, in life. When we go to the grocery store, 
you have no idea what's going to happen the next moment. And so this is exactly what's happened with children whose families are in crisis, either individually or the whole family itself. Let's look at homelessness, single parents, school failure. What, how would school failure put a child in crisis? What do you think? Suppose there's a parent in, in, uh, a parent in the home where the mom is a substance abuser. Child's failing. What's the crisis? I'm sorry? Drops out of school and wonder why. Why would a child drop out of school when there's a parent in the home? But it's the substance. So in other words, there's no support there. So that leaves the child to do what? Do what he feels he needs to do. He's, he's solving his own problem. And most kids, remember, are not equipped. They're kids. Children are not equipped to solve problems. Adults aren't always equipped to solve problems. That's how some of the families get in this position anyway, because they could have been raised by these very same crises identifiers. And so, so a lot of times it's so easy for us to kind of, well, these families need to get themselves straight and they need Jesus. And I agree. But is that going to solve the problem for what's really needed for these children? Because who's going out there in those homes and actually present Jesus in a way that they can hear? You know, I grew up in a church where if you didn't have the cookies and the drink, you weren't going to get the neighborhood kids because they were hungry. So it's kind of like you got to you got to show them some type of stability in some way, a plan to be able to get them to the point of understanding their behaviors. Marital conflict, working mothers, sexual diseases. I think I skipped substance abuse while I mentioned it. Teen pregnancy and divorce. All these can create family crisis. Here we have unemployment, physical abuse, death, loss, poverty, sexual identity, incarceration, domestic violence, physical illness, Pornography, job security, blended families, mental illness. And I'm going to tell you, I left off about 40. I have 40 other things. I just did not want to bore you all to death putting words up on the screen. But can you imagine each one of these in interaction with another? I'm not putting, it, putting them out in terms of integration and how they follow one or the other. Each of these can be combined with another to create family crisis. Oh, that's my fancy stuff. Ignore this. I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Okay, so I hope you all can see this picture. I'm going to kind of go up to it. So this is the effects of family crisis. This is after the effects of family crisis. So little girl goes to school. I want to kind of show you what this picture is saying. And the board, this is the teacher's board, says, meet the person responsible for your choices, for your grades, for your success, your words and actions. So these are mirrors. So imagine a teacher whose expectation that this little girl right here, who's just experienced all the effects or some of the effects of family crisis, imagine what she's going to do in school when she sees that she is responsible. When she goes up to each word, that mirror, each mirror there describes what the teacher's expectation. What do you think is going to happen there? She's going to beat herself up. She's not going to be able to live up to the expectation. First of all, she might say, how can I do that? Why would somebody even ask me to be responsible for that? A lot of children in crisis don't even know that there's an expectation of success or there's an expectation of excellence. Most kids in family crisis, their parents are saying, you're no good. You're just like your daddy. You're going to be just like your cousin Frank. And I mean, and and so it's because the parent can't cope. 
they put these names and labels on children who take it as themselves. And so, like, I think the first answer was they beat themselves up. They put themselves down. They don't see themselves as valuable. And so these are kind of some of the things that we talk to professionals when a child comes into care at Baptist Children's Homes. We want those professionals like the social workers and the schools and the teachers to understand that this child cannot do this. This child is not capable. If that child experienced in the last three or four slides on family crisis descriptions, this child cannot go to a mirror and feel that they are responsible for what we in society expect. I mean, my mom certainly expected me to have all be responsible for all this. But guess what? My mom was not substance abuse. She was a young widow. But that was the only crisis in our home, pretty much for me growing up. So all those other things that we added, we didn't have those things. So that so being a widow was something my mother could overcome to make sure that her children were successful. But most of the children we see do not have that experience. So let's look at principles for working with children who've experienced trauma. Okay, adults working with children who have experienced trauma and neglect often find themselves struggling to address powerful swings in emotion. Now, these are the behaviors I've talked about that children will express when they're trying to tell you something. So you'll see emotion, swings in emotion, dissociation. What is dissociation? Does anyone know? It's when you step back. You just separate yourself from whatever they're doing over there. I'm not a part of it. And you really don't know why. You really don't have a reason why. How about behavior outbursts? Have any of you all seen that in your churches? I'm sure when we used to visit the churches from Baptist Children's Homes during November, we've had many kids who would have a behavior outburst in the middle of the church services. So we would try to really talk with the pastor, you know, before we came to say we've got a child who's dealing with some things and you might see us go out or might see the staff go out because children are giving us a signal. And, and we at BCH are looking for those signals so we can help kids to grow and develop. So, all right, withdrawal. Kids that just don't want to be a part. Numbness. Can you imagine being put down, having all kinds of things going on in your home and not being able to take care of yourself? Time after time after time, you know, eight years old from birth or five years old from two. There are so many equations we can look at, but most of the time, children do not know how to respond to their family crisis. Also, impenetrable avoidance. When you're trying to get close to somebody, and the closer you get, the further back they go. The closer you get, they go sideways. They'll sidestep you everywhere that they can, and that's because they cannot function in the way of being close to someone. If the home was not close, they already said you're getting out of here at 16 because I can't take your mouth anymore. So they feel that no one cares about them. And that's exactly what they are showing in their behavior. So in our work at BCH, we're looking to help adults work with children to reduce trauma effects and to restore healthy development. And what an honor it is to be able to do that at Baptist Children's Homes. So here are the principles for working with children who have experienced trauma. Let's look at the definition. Trauma is an emotional shock that creates substantial and lasting damage to the psychological development of an individual. That's why those kids can dissociate. This is a psychological problem. Now, it's not just mama doesn't care about me. It now has penetrated in the brain into a self-thought. Also, 
the, it creates substantial and lasting damage to psychological development. It is deeply distressing or disturbing experience. We never know where the trauma is going to set in. It could be they can take it over and over and over again from a parent. And then the teacher goes and, and, and responds in the same teacher gets angry because they're not meeting expectations. And that could be the moment that the child just gives up and just backs up and said, I can't go any further. Also, a real or perceived threat to life, to body integrity or to sanity. Sometimes you have kids who are so smart and they see what mom ought to be doing or they see what dad ought to be doing, but they have no say. And they can't do it. And that's where you see childhood prostitution. That's where you see kids on the street, 12 and 13 years old, getting food for babies, selling their bodies. And yet we'll pass by and tisk tisk, you know, but we don't know what the other side of that child's experience is. Also, it overwhelms an individual's ability to cope. That's bottom line. Parents don't know how to cope. Kids don't know how to cope. So that's our job in trying to get them to a place of balance to where they can actually feel that there is hope for their lives in the future. And their experience is outside the scope of an everyday human experiences. Think about this. We almost got hit three times. I live in New Bern, North Carolina, and I'm telling you that traffic, unbelievable. They had two homecomings, one in Chapel Hill, one in Durham, and uh, I could not get a hotel room close to Raleigh anywhere, so we, had, we went to Raleigh, had to go back to Benson to get a room. About 10 accidents, and three of them almost hit us three different times, and I'm telling you, I was traumatized, but guess what? By the time I got a shower, I love hot tea. My husband got me a nice big old mug of hot tea, and he cut the lights down and I was able to rest. I hadn't thought about it until right now. And so what I thought was a harrowing, life-changing experience for me, this hot tea fixed me up and going to bed fixed me up, you know. And so this really was not something that I would call trauma. I had a bad day, but it wasn't trauma. All right. Thank you, Mr. Rusty. We got a timepiece back there, so I'm going to hurry. So let's look at the long-term pervasive impacts. It affects physical health, your body, sexual challenges, emotional responses, difficulty managing feelings, coping, stress management, repeating dangerous patterns. Why do girls go over and over? Why do men over and over put themselves out in a place of danger? Because they can't cope and they don't know what else to do. Uh, Cognition, it affects their thinking, learning, communication, concentration and judgment. Self-concept, low self-esteem, shame, guilt, poor self-image, all these things are definitions of what a child who's undergoing trauma will do. This is the behavior of what they'll do. Forming relationships, they cannot trust you. I don't care how many cookies and, and nice things you do for them, they cannot trust. They also have, are vulnerable to unsafe relationships. They perceive blame. I don't care what happens, they will blame themselves or they will attack somebody. So, so one or the other. And they also will isolate themselves. Individuals do not see reality as it is, but only as they perceive it. And their perceptions are sometimes mistaken or biased according to their experience. And quickly, this is our prescription for working with children who experience trauma. We at Baptist Children's Homes, these are the three things we really try to do. We, ha- we try to see with the eyes of their experience. So we're not trying to just tell them from our perch what they need to do. We're trying to go there. We want to understand everything that went on there in their home so we can see what they've experienced. 
We also want to hear with the ears of their experience. We want to understand what that language is because that's why they're cussing us out as, as staff. We want to understand what their environment was like through what they heard. And we also want to feel with their heart what they've been through. And most of those kids come to us with a broken heart. They don't feel that they've been given a chance. They don't feel like anybody not only not loves them, but wants to love them. And so that is our job at Baptist Children's Homes. And I'm not sure what's next. So now Miss Regina's going to come with don't tell someone to get over trauma. We want to help them get through it. Regina. Okay. When I first came to work at Baptist Children's Homes, I, I, you'll know that we speak a lot about from our own experience, where we work, etc. We want what we share with you to be able to take back to wherever you are, whether it's a member of a church or pastor of a church, support staff. Uh, but when I first came, we had our own willy-nilly sort of system. It was um, residential care, but it was all a point system. If you do this infraction, you get this many points. And you get this many days of being on the bad list. And if you don't work these days off, then guess what? You get another day on the bad list. Well, the kids were digging holes, not literally, but digging themselves into holes because they couldn't get off the bad list. Their infractions were all over the place because they're wounded. And they couldn't think the way that I thought. If my parents had used that with me, it would be totally fine. Regina, you're on the bad list for a couple of days and you'll get off of it. I would listen to my parents because I'd had that stability in life. These kids haven't. They could care less if they're on the bad list because that does not matter. So we were fortunate enough uh, to come across a program, and it's called CARE. And CARE is an acronym for Children and Residential Experience. But these are things that you can also use with the kids in any sort of group setting, individually. However, we've tried to make it into a way that we can be helpful with that. So... Identifying responding to pain-based behavior. Sandy's told us that if kids have had true trauma, they're going to have some pain-based behaviors. And it's not what's wrong with you, but what has happened to you. So how many of us uh, had a grandfather that may have said, when you did something wrong, boy, what's wrong with you, right? Because he knows you've been taught better, and by golly, you should have done better, and maybe he's going to give you extra work to do sort of punishment, right? That's okay when you've been raised in a stable environment. When you've not been raised in a stable environment, it's more about what's happened to you. Why are you responding in this way? And there are reasons for that, and every child's is different. So I encourage you that even in your own work, in your own home, in your own congregation, as you see children and youth that maybe are doing things that just don't make any sense, to say that back to yourself, even with adults, um, because I work now more with the staff that work with the kids than with the kids directly themselves. And I have to say to myself, you know, what's happened to that staff that this is so important to them? And that will help me be able to respond better. And in be being able to respond better, it helps them be able to function. So a trauma-informed approach if you suspect that you have folks in your surroundings, in your church groups, in your uh, everyday life, in school groups, what kind of approach do we need to take? When working with children and teens who have experienced trauma, take that trauma into account before, into account for all of the following. 
your programs, your activities, the services provided, relationships. I think about the youth group I grew up with. We like to play sardines. Who knows sardines? I see smiles in the back. That's right. You know, so, you know, if somebody had an empty parsonage, which was the case in our day, you'd turn all those lights out and somebody would go hide in the shower and then everybody had to go find them, you know. Well, that's okay, uh, hide and seek in the dark for a bunch of kids that maybe haven't experienced trauma. But if I'm somebody who's been abandoned or just have anxiety, then that ain't the best game for me. You know, I'm going to be sitting in that kitchen when it's my turn to go find the group, and, and I could freak out, right? And then it may be, well, what's wrong with you, Regina? Why can't you play this game? Well, that's not it. It's about what's happened to Regina that she can't fully participate in that game. I think about dodgeball. I mean, I've never been a real athletic person. And in third grade, I hated dodgeball. I mean, come on, some of those boys can throw that ball. And it wasn't the balls of today, people. No, no, no. It was what? Those red plastic balls that, who knows these balls? Come on. Who's, who else is 50 in the room? Okay. So these red balls, and they would pop. You're not supposed to hit somebody you know, above the waist. Well, you know, what third grader can really help themselves, right? They're throwing those balls. And then my kids at Mills Home right now, I would never play dodgeball with them because, one, some of them are so angry that they would really, and I know you've got these new softer dodgeballs, but still, that's it's a trigger. It could easily be a trigger. So know your group that you're with. Know, know how they'll respond and think about that and, and make something else for them to do during that time. Maybe they're a judge or whatever of the game. Um, but think about those things. Think about how what you're doing is creating a, an area for healing and for belonging and not for uh, focusing on weaknesses. A lot of collaborative games where uh, you're doing things together are much better than com- competition uh, for children that have experienced trauma. And uh, it helps to buffer then the children and the adults from the repetitive stress. Another saying that we learned in this training and that we say to each other constantly in our work is, children will do well if they can. Nobody wants, no child wants to disappoint you. No child wants to be a real pain in the derriere because they have this need that you don't know about. They want to do well if they can. And if they can't, it's our responsibility to help them. It's our responsibility to figure it out. Um, we've had some situations that I know my parents would have scoffed at and thought, no, you're just giving in, you're making everybody in the world a pansy or whatever word you want to use. And, and, but no, it's helping us get through the day. Uh, most recently, we've had a girl that um, she came in and she was off the chain chaotic in her own life. 14-year-old and didn't want to do anything. The answer was no to everything. And compliance is not our goal. A relationship is our goal. And then once you have that relationship, that child wants to please you. And we had had a donation of uh, China dolls. (laughs) And we had it in the front room of the office. And she saw this baby doll in there. And she wanted it. 
And by golly, on that day, anything to keep her from running away, I didn't care how old she was, she was going to have that baby doll. And the carriage that went with it. And if she needed to carry it with her, wherever on campus we were going, then we were going to let her do that. We needed her to know that she was in a safe space. It was a new relationship. She needed to get to know us and grow with us. And yes, I wouldn't want her carrying it out in public off of campus. But there where we were, she needed to be able to do what she felt was important. And it was a very healing moment for her because soon she put that baby doll to the side and she trusted us. And so you've got to be able to do what you can to figure out what will help that child. Children and teens handle trauma as best they can. When they can't, you'll know. (laughs) Pain-based behavior is most commonly present. And Sandy's talked about some of these, but impulsive outburst. Even if you say to Johnny, you know, can you be quiet? We're praying. I'm not going to listen to you. And it's over-exaggeration, right? Uh, aggressive acts. Uh, I don't have to explain that. Inability to tolerate uncertainty or ambiguity. Um, I need to know the schedule. I need to know, I'm saying I, if I'm the child that's traumatized, I need to know what's next because that helps me. And that's one of the things that we really focus on, an agenda so that child knows what's next so they're not caught by surprise. That ambiguity makes their whole life seem more chaotic and out of control. Withdrawing or running away, we have runners. <laughs> we have runners. We try not to make a big deal about it. We try to encourage them to make good life choices, and we help them do that. You know, if you don't want to be here, let's call the person that has control over that. Let's call your, your mom if you're in a church or your DSS worker if you're with Baptist Children's Homes, and let's talk to them, talk it out, and not just run from it. Clinginess. We've all got that one kid in church that wants to hang on to you and you're just like, oh no, here they come again, right? Because you feel like your cup is always a little bit empty and all they want to do is hold on to you. But that child that's been traumatized needs to know that they're okay about with the adults around them and they need, you'll see that in a child that's been traumatized. And then self-injury as well. Uh, I know that you're aware of kids cutting and that sort of thing and that sort of self-injury. It gets attention. So if you can give the child attention before it happens and not after. Uh, If you're on a, a trip with a group of youth and you've got somebody that's scratched up their arm, obviously, I'd give it attention for what needs to be cleaned, put some ointment on it, put a Band-Aid on it, and not talk about it. Because if you talk and sit and talk out all their feelings, then that reiterated that message that they're going to get that attention. You fix them, you make sure they're healthy, and then you talk to them the next day on the front porch of the, of the cottage that you're staying at or whatever and talk to them and give them that attention. The most important thing we can all do is make sure that the children that we see these trauma uh, evidence in is that they have an attachment. And that doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be you, but somebody in your congregation, in their community, an adult mentor, if you're a small church, uh, uh, it could be you if you're the pastor, but that attachment is so important. Relationships are what it's what's going to help this child. A lasting connection between uh, two human, human beings, regardless of space or time. Think about who you're attached to. So I don't know. How many people listen to podcasts? Anybody? Okay. Thank you, Ray. Yeah. Okay. So I've only listened to four, and there's nine. But Dolly, 
Parton, obviously, and um, just how the episodes that I've listened to today is talking about uh, My Tennessee Mountain Home is one of her songs and just how much she loves her upbringing. Now, she was one of 12 in a family. There were 10 kids. They all slept in the same bed. You know, they were poor. Her daddy was a sharecropper, all that sort of stuff. And she had the most wonderful childhood when you listen to her, her music. Now, obviously, there was pain from all that. But she loves that home, and that's, a, that's her big attachment. And this uh, interviewer on the podcast just talked to her about how, how her family, she'll say, every time he talks to her about family, she'll say, family's the most important thing. Well, I'll flip that for her and say, attachments are the most important thing. For those, those children that we work with that don't have family or have unhealthy family, attachments are the most important thing. And, um, and we need to realize that. Uh, I think about my own attachments uh, and things that are important to me and how they've shaped my own life. So attachments are important. We know that. And then you think about, I mean, how many of us in here that no longer have living grandparents think about the wonderful days that we spent with our grandparents? It's that sort of thing. Well, the kids I serve, oftentimes they're not going to have that to look back on. So we need to help them make attachments now with adults that they can look back on. The adults that think that they are the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, so they have those attachments. When you have an attachment to somebody, you've got the freedom to explore, play, and learn. You feel comfortable enough to be your own self and know that if you mess up, somebody's going to forgive you. The ability to form positive, then it allows you to have the ability to form positive attachments in adult life too. Uh, what we're building now in these children is what they're going to live. And we need to help them learn how to build positive attachments so they can have a healthy adulthood. And then development of co-regulation and then self-regulation skills. So kids can't regulate their own emotions and kids that have been traumatized even more so. So going in and helping them when they're having a meltdown, helping them know it's going to be okay, then leads to them learning how to regulate themselves. A secure base, that attachment, we all need a secure base. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but just as Sandy said, the kids on her block didn't care about going to church unless they had something to eat because they're hungry. We've got to take care of those baseline things. Kids need safety. They need food. They need shelter. They need clothing. One of the things that we see at BCH often is within that first day, if we've taken care of the child's clothing needs and food needs and space needs, They'll have a health care need. They'll have a health care need that it's perceived to them to be huge. And it may be something that does or doesn't need a Band-Aid, but to be able to have that attention from you because they're checking to see if you're going to take care of them physically. They need that secure base. And then all behavior has meaning. Attention-needing behavior is attachment-seeking behavior. So those kids in our youth group, Maybe they aren't just clingy, but they sure do need a lot of attention, and it's constantly that Johnny's calling out uh, for your, uh, your name to have you watch this or watch that. They are wanting to attach to you. That attention-seeking behavior is attachment-seeking behavior. And so in the name of those positive attachments, we've got to prepare, be prepared to sometimes overlook behaviors that aren't appropriate at times. Um. I've got kids that make poor body choices on the bus. 
changing clothes on the bus. Well, who in the world thinks they're going to change the britches on a bus and, and nobody notice it, right? But it's about teaching them that whether you think it's okay or not, and somebody had a, a blanket over you, that's not what we do in public, you know. It's about, and only if we have positive attachments to them can we do that sort of thing. Recently, one of our children did something that we were really proud of, and uh, I was so excited, and I won't say too much so we won't identify it all, but then uh, somebody said to me, but have you seen her Facebook page? I said, well, no, I don't look at the kids' Facebook pages. That's not my level. And so I went and looked at it, and I told a supervisor, I said, can you get her to lock down that Facebook page so it's not public? That's all I really care about, make it you know, locked down. And the, su- the supervisor I was talking to said to me, she said, because I've spent so much time with her this week, that won't be a problem. She knew that they had that sort of connection. And most of the time, a 17-year-old girl doesn't want you to tell her what to do with her social media. But this supervisor knew that it, it would be okay because she had that attachment with her. Uh, communicate acceptance. When you have that positive attachment, that child then knows that they're accepted by you. And it encourages the child to try again when they've done something that's, that's not been a good choice. Four things that you need to keep in mind as the adult. You need to be available, and I think this is important to be able to share with your uh, families, but parents need to be available to their kids. I, we all laugh about, you know, sitting around a table and we all are on the phones, and it's not just a certain generation. I mean, it's all of us, right, whether it's grandma and grandpa all the way down. And so we need to be available. We need to have downtime that's not uh, chaotic, that doesn't have lots of outside noise from electronics or TV or whatever. But be available to your child. Have sensitivity to what they're going through. It may not seem like a huge issue at the time to you, but to be sensitive to that, to show acceptance and investment in their lives. One of the, This is... Um, This information is based on someone providing therapy to a child, but I think it's so important to see what the top number is. So factors that affect change in children. The number one factor that affected change in a child was the the child's personal strengths, resources, and beliefs. But the second is the relationship between the child and the adult. So the relationship you have with that child beyond their own personal strengths, the relationship is very important and allows that child to be able to make changes if they want to make changes. So so here, I'm not going to go too far because I want to try and pull up a link for you. But here, human trafficking is something I'm sure all of us have heard about and how serious it is. This is a picture of a little girl with a man around her mouth saying, if you tell anyone. So imagine when you have children and you threaten their parents, any of their experiences, this is what a child is experiencing that they cannot share. They are not going to be able to tell you what the fear is. So, Mr. Rusty, if um, I'm, I'm going to try, you'll have these two in your packet. You have this human trafficking hotline information. I'm not going to go through it. It has a 1-800 number, but I am going to read to you those bottom The bottom two things about what is happening with human trafficking and sex trafficking is hotel-based commercial sex. 
It is fake massage businesses, street-based commercial sex, truck stops, escort services, and labor trafficking is domestic work, agriculture, traveling sales crew, health and beauty services, restaurants, and construction. So it sounds like the American life has opportunity where human trafficking can take place. And I just want to quickly go to a site that you can pull up. Uh, This is also text Sell, call, text, and live chat. These are contact information. If you have information to um, the hotline that someone is being trafficked. And I just simply want to go through one of these links to show you how to get the other information. Okay, so these are missing facts, and you'll also be able to see recognizing. Recognizing the signs. So all those in your packet, I just want to pay attention to that, okay? And I think, Miss Regina, we're probably ready for you. Okay. What I've put up here now is the one for 14 to 21-year-olds. But how do we know when our kids are in a bad relationship, whether that's with a friend or somebody they're dating or somebody that's exploiting them? And I think these are eight things that we need to be aware of and to teach them, to teach our teens, uh, to be able to identify. Sometimes we see something and we don't know what to call it. And so to be able to say to a child, well, number one, intensity. Somebody that's excessively charming, maybe they lie to cover up the insecurity. They need to win over your friends and family immediately. They're over the top. They have gestures that seem uh, too much too soon. They bombard you with numerous texts and emails in a short time, behaving obsessively, insisting that you get serious immediately. There's something. It's a checklist for the kid to say, okay, so there is some intensity there, mom or youth minister or pastor. I see what you're saying. To be able to name that. Um, Isolation. If that person that's their friend or their boyfriend, girlfriend or adult friend that they shouldn't be around is wanting to insist that they only spend time with him or her, making, uh, making you have emotionally or physic- psychologically inde- dependent on them, preventing you from seeing your family or friends or from going to school or work. Again, that should show a red flag. So to be able to go over these with your teens to say, here are some red flags of when you're not being treated well, especially kids that have been traumatized. They think everything's their fault. They think they need to win over friends, and they often will just allow friends to treat them in any, in any sort of way, and it's not healthy, and it continues that pattern. So um, this is published by a group that's called Beauty Cares that's out of New York City. It's domestic violence um, shelter and and so that's why it's all pink or whatever but anyway you can find this online too I just kind of looked up the first little words and so you'll be able to use that to show uh, and make copies of your own too Uh, it is in the public domain so want you to be able to have these skills for your teens because the teens need to be able to name it in their own relationship of what is not healthy okay I think that might be it (laughs) Uh, yep. So, questions, comments, feedback. Anybody have anything that we said that might um, need to talk about? Yes, ma'am. Do, you, do y'all have resources to, like, if there was an issue at a church, that the church could reach out to you guys to get some help with some of Thank you very much. So, Baptist Children's Homes, here's our number. 
and our 800 number and you're welcome to call the switchboard. Uh, the switchboard's located in Thomasville and Patricia Carroll answers that for everything and she is very helpful and she will send you to me. And or, or if you specifically want to speak with Sandy, you could ask for either one of us and Patricia would get that call. And we're happy to talk with you about things um, that you might be dealing with. Thank you for asking that. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.